I was uh, just thinking about the words of the song. You can go ahead and open your Bible up to the book of 1 Timothy. And um, some of the words of this song that we just sang um, really stood out to me on the, as relating to the subject we're going to deal with today. It says, uh, at the end of uh, the second verse, it says, "Midst this world's confusion, speak, O Lord, to me. Guide me by thy counsel. Let me follow thee. The subject we're going to talk about today has been the subject of a lot of debate and confusion, and uh, especially out in the world. And uh, we're going to see what the Lord, word of the Lord has to say and set all that confusion straight. So I'm going to go ahead and open up my Bible here as well to the book of First uh, Timothy. And we're going to talk this week about God's standard for a woman's character. I don't just say His standards for women, but it's actually for their characters that we're going to talk about. We're going to spend the whole next chapter talking about men's character and the qualifications of elders and deacons. So lest you be afraid we're going to be too hard on women this week, just wait. (laughs) We've got a whole chapter devoted to guys' character and uh, the expectations for them. So, uh, 1 Timothy, chapter 2, and starting in verse 8. I'm going to recap a little bit what was already covered uh, last week by Matt. It says, I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Now that's a mouthful. (laughs) And we need to uh, break this apart and figure out what the Lord's... uh, bringing to us this morning. All right. So from the context in chapter 2, we see that he starts off by talking about men praying with holy hands. And the, the, um, the subject there is that men, when we're coming before God, we're to come before Him with a holy character, right? Without any uh, wrath or doubt in our hearts, but pure before the Lord, And Paul continues on in verse 9, and he says, In that like manner of holiness and purity, the women also. Let them adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. All right, so what's it talking about? Well, it's saying there's a proper way to go about this, this whole business of church. This is what the book of 1 Timothy is about. It's about the proper um, way to behave and to conduct ourselves as Christians as part of the church. We talked in chapter 1 about Timothy being watchful and vigilant 
for false doctrine and false teachers that would try and cause confusion and division in the midst of the, the Christian assembly. Um, how they would try and deceive people. And it seems that there's also perhaps another issue in the church at Ephesus that Paul's trying to address here with standards for how people are behaving in church. And so now we're on to this section. We're saying, women, don't dress up all gaudy for church. It's not about what you look like, right? But it's about what's proper for women professing godliness. And there's been ages and ages of debate about what is, what's proper. What's a woman supposed to wear? What, what's too revealing? What's, you know, uh, homely and, and outdated? And there's just a lot of debate uh, about this subject. But it's laid out right here, black and white. Modest apparel. Well, what does modest apparel mean? People have gotten legalistic about it. It means a skirt so long or a neckline so high and, and no lower. But think about it this way. How you dress is a reflection upon your character. And that's what this passage is about. It's about character. So if you're dressing to come before the Lord and to fellowship with all the saints, what's in your heart? Are you coming to make a show of yourself? Are you coming to impress other people? Or are we coming before the Lord in community as a church saying, we are here as the blood-bought people coming to worship the Lord and sharing community with one another? It's where your heart is at. That's the, the most important part. And if you're trying to behave properly, then what works together well with everyone else who is there? What is not going to detract from the, from the message? What is not going to detract from focusing on the Lord? And it seems that perhaps in Ephesus, that the church might have become a bit of a fashion show, that people were showing up very expensively dressed, maybe with big hats, I don't know. <laughs> but the, uh, the deal was is that, especially for the rich people in the congregation, they were shaming the poor people in the congregation. And how can I sit there and worship the Lord if I'm sitting next to someone Who's, who looks, makes me look like a pauper, right? I'm judging, I start to judge them. It's just natural in my heart. I start to judge them and think, why has this person got to be so showy? Why do they have to have so much more stuff than me? And it brings in those feelings of jealousy or envy that are not right. And so it's causing other people to stumble because of the... Um, <laughs> the, the the extravagance of certain people's dress. And so there was dissension going on in the, in the ranks because the people who were poor couldn't dress as nicely as the people that were richer. And if you're a person on, with, on the richer side, perhaps they were thinking, oh, I'm, 
what's this person dressing? Is that the best they can afford? They're, they're dressing like a slob. And so they'd look down. And that is not conducive to unity within a body that Christ calls His church to be. So, we're called not to judge other people by what they're wearing or what they're partaking in. And so there's, a, there's also um, a standard of we have to control the thoughts that are in our heart, right? I can't judge someone for wearing something because it makes me feel a certain way. I'm having bad thoughts about them, right? But on the same time, if you're dressing in such a way that would provoke those thoughts in others, that puts you equally at fault. And so the whole emphasis is on, it's not on, you know, women, you know, don't braid your hair. You know, all, all hair braiding is sin, right? I don't think, <laughs> I don't think that's what the, the passage is saying here. It's not about whether your hair is braided or not. It's about, are you showing off? Maybe a woman has a lot of rich, rich, luxurious hair, right? And so she's done it up into this massive hairdo that puts all the other women into shame. No one else has hair like that. I don't know. But can you see how that would provoke other people to envy? Wow, she has amazing hair. And then you start being envious. Why didn't God give me hair like that? For me, it's, uh, it's not such an issue. <laughs> but it's, it's about the heart. What are, we, what are we saying by the way we dress, by the way we adorn ourselves? Are we saying, I'm coming before the Lord? One of the, one of the words in here, it says, um, with propriety and moderation. Um, I was talking with Don about this earlier, and he said the, um, this word propriety in here um, one of the meanings of the Greek word is, um, is like shameful or shamefacedness. In other words, you as a sinner, right? Clothes were invented in the first place as a covering because we felt guilty. We felt ashamed before the Lord <clears throat> because we knew about the sin in our own lives. It was revealed to us, we're sinners. And so what do we try and do? We tried to, we tried to cover up. So when we dress with propriety, there's that sense of we're sinners. The whole reason we're getting dressed this morning at all is because we're sinners. And we're coming before the Lord as sinners. So <laughs> how, does, how does a sinner dress? Does it dress as revealingly as possible? No. We're coming humbly with propriety before the Lord, saying, I'm a sinner, and I'm here before the Lord as a sinner, and I'm going to dress not as proud of my physical nature, but really realizing that I rely upon the Lord for everything, for my physical looks, for my spiritual well-being, everything that I am and I have, I owe to the Lord. So how do you clothe a body that owes everything that it is and has to the Lord? with propriety and moderation. And then here's, here's the secret in verse 10. It says, But which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. That's the important part. The important part is not what you're wearing. It's the godliness with good works. You want to show that you're 
reverent before the Lord, have a good character, be godly, and do good works towards others. The good works will endure far longer than that latest dress (laughs) and that hairdo and the jewelry. The good works are eternal. They're what God has created us for beforehand so that we might walk in them, as Ephesians 2.10 says. That's the emphasis. And so, as, as women in the church, and men too, we're called to godliness and good works. And that's what uh, Paul is emphasizing. And it's easy, like I said, there's been a, a lot of debate over this subject and a lot of legalism. But we can talk about the good, good sides of a, of a character and what demonstrates propriety. But there's also, we notice, don't we, when someone's being improper. And it's easy to do, and I myself may have been guilty of this, but um, as a young man, it's easy to gravitate towards better-looking people, better-looking women in particular, right? And it's easy, like say we're at a church picnic, and... All of a sudden you notice that the young men are flocking towards one young woman in particular who's dressed maybe a bit more revealingly than all the rest. Well, what does that say about the heart of the young men? It says that they're following what their eyes are seeing. And that reveals the young men's character as well. (laughs) So this challenge isn't just towards the women and saying, look, the burden is all on you. Men. Be mindful about where your own heart is. Control your thoughts. Control the lust of the eyes and the desire of the flesh. It's not all about what the women are wearing. And if anyone would try to place all the blame there, (laughs) it's not the truth. Let's uh, turn over with with me, if you would, to uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. Verses 3 through 8. In 1 Peter 3, 3 through 8, he writes, Do not let your adornment, he's speaking to the women again, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is very precious in the sight of God. I'm going to stop there a moment just for emphasis. He says, the most important thing for a godly woman is her character, what's in her heart. And it says it's the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Women, if you're here this morning... And you're, saying, and you're thinking in your heart, I want to do what is right in the sight of the Lord and I want to be acceptable before Him. Here's, here it is. A gentle and quiet spirit is very precious in the, sight of, in the sight of God. And here's another case where what God's Word says seems to contradict the, the worldly standards where the world says, stand up for yourself. Don't give in to men who only try and take whatever they want. Don't, 
Don't let yourself be talked down to. Have pride in yourself. Be strong. And that's a trap. That's a trap based on pride. And a gentle and quiet spirit, someone who says, yeah, I care about this person. I want to serve them. I want to demonstrate good works. I want to help out in the assembly. I want to faithfully bring service towards other people. I want to help the other ladies out. We want to... Um, uh, the, the possibilities are, are, are just far too many, but I'm just thinking of some people that faithfully serve here around the chapel who clean up in the kitchen week in and week out. And I know that there's a, a responsibility list for that, but I always seem to see more women in the kitchen cleaning up than are actually on the responsibility list. The Lord sees that. And tell you what, the guys notice that too. Believe it or not, <laughs> it's noticed. When they're helping out, watching the kids out front during the nutrition break, there's a lot of kids running around. And you can always see a few extra people just kind of keeping watch. The parents are out there, but there's always a few people keeping watch, making sure the kids are safe. There's um, visits during the week to, to other people's houses to help them out, share a meal together, uh, share in hospitality and bear one another, and see women bearing one another's burdens. Um, I think of uh, all the meals that have been provided over the years to sick people in this assembly. And trust me, we've had our, our share of sick people, haven't we? But there's cash, endless, an endless row of casserole dishes been provided to sick people over the years here at Calvary. The Lord sees all of that. He sees that gentle and quiet spirit that says, I'm putting the saints ahead of myself. Yeah, I've got a big, busy schedule and kids that I'm raising, but I've taken that extra time to deliver a plate of cookies or take a, a casserole dish or whatever over to somebody's house. The Lord sees that gentle and quiet spirit, that, that selflessness that demonstrates the real character of God. And God looks at that and He sees, says, that is precious to me. That character is precious to me. So ladies, don't be discouraged if you think, oh, I did that and no one saw it. God saw it. And we're grateful for all the work that you ladies do in bringing this assembly together and building it up. It's not an insignificant work. <laughs> we're very indebted to all of you. And the Lord said that that is precious. And then uh, continuing in 1 Peter uh, 3, 5, it said, For in this manner in former times the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have an example here in the Scripture of Sarah and Abraham and Sarah's submiss submissiveness to him as Abraham was the leader of their household. And the Lord points back to her and he says, you see Sarah's uh, devotedness to Abraham? You see um, those times that they went into Egypt 
and Abraham was a bit of a coward, but Sarah did what he said anyway. That was her being submissive to her husband at expense to herself. And the Lord recognizes her in the scriptures for having had that gentle and quiet spirit. And that's not the natural or easy thing to do. I remember, um, oh, about two months back, I guess, we were having a, a discussion and uh, we were talking about, uh, <laughs> of all things, baby names and husbands and wives uh, naming a kid. And the question was raised, what if a husband and wife can't agree on what they should name a kid? Who gets the final say? And we had, I don't know how many hours of discussion over this. But we were trying to figure out what does it mean for a woman to submit to her husband? Is the husband just say, my word is law, I will hear no other discussion? Does a woman say, you've given me no voice, that's wrong? And the, tr the truth of the matter is that there's a call from the Lord on both sides for husbands and wives to be dwelling together in unity as one flesh. And for the, the husband, of course, he's called to leadership, and we'll look at that over the, um, uh, the next couple of weeks where we'll talk about the men's role of leadership in the assemblies. But as a man... It, and I'm going to speak to the guys for a second. As a man, as the leader of your household, talking about this specific instance of naming your kid, are you going to dig your heels in and just run, steamroll right over your wife? How is that demonstrating a, a loving relationship? And wives, if you're following that godly uh, command to submit to your husband's, are you going to get your hackles all up and say, this is what I want? It's just two people being proud. And as a husband, I would hope as the leader in that situation, I'm just using this as one illustration. There's countless illustrations that I could use. But as a husband, why shouldn't you be the first person to point out, hey, I'm being proud about this. I'm digging my heels in. What's the best thing for our marriage to honor your wife? It says that right in the scriptures, husbands honor your wives. And it equally says wives submit to your husbands. So what's the best course of action? And there needs to be some humility, <laughs> that gentle and quiet spirit on both sides. So I, I really appreciated that discussion we had a couple months ago and um, all the time we spent talking about it because it really does point out an issue. We can get entrenched in our own positions, can't we? We can become proud. And the Lord says of Sarah, of her gentle and quiet spirit, that it was an adornment to her. It was more beautiful than any clothes she could have went, worn. And we, we know from the scriptures from back in Genesis that Sarah was an attractive woman. But the Lord says her adornment was her gentle and quiet spirit in submitting to Abraham. Isn't that awesome? I love that the Lord points
points to character much more than he does to any sort of physical appearance. All right, keep, I'm going to keep going in First uh, uh, Peter for just another verse or two. It says, husbands, uh, in verse 7, Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. So there's a couple key points I want to point out to in those verses. First of all, in verse 7 when it says, Husbands dwell together with, or dwell with them with understanding. Husbands are called to understand their wives and to give understanding to them. Guys, there's your challenge. <laughs> I think as guys we can be, we can recognize that we need understanding ourselves. Don't we? So why would you not also under, extend understanding to your wife? I think, the, uh, <laughs> I think the guys have it easy on this score, if you, uh, if you ask me my own opinion. I think it's easier for a guy to understand, extend understanding to his wife than it might be for his wife to understand, extend understanding back to him. And I see my dad nodding back there, so I think I'm on the right track. <laughs> Husbands, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife. And I want to point out this uh, next couple phrases as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life. I want to that phrase really stood out to me in verse 7 of being heirs together of the grace of life. Men and women are equally recipients from God of life itself. God created men and women both. And before God, how great is His grace that He gave to us to be alive and to serve Him. So, if husbands are tempted to not be understanding towards their wives or not to honor, recognize that she's just as much a human being as you are. God created her equal, and that, that carries two weights. If you're tempted to put her down and treat her as less, she's still a God-created being, just like yourself. So there's that. On, this, on the same time, if you're, if you're thinking about how do we work this relationship together, recognize that it's equally a gift to both of you that you're alive in the first place. And you should honor her as being part of God, as being an equal creation, of being something that God created, but not as a man giving forsaking your responsibility as a man. So let's, let's talk about that, and let's go back to 1 Timothy and uh, verses 9 and 10. Um, or sorry, uh, starting in, in uh, verse 11. 
It says, let a, woman learn, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. And I'm going to stop there for just a second. So Paul is saying within a church, here's responsibilities that are given to men. To, to teach and to have authority within a church. That's the men's role, and we're going to get into that in the, in the next, uh, next chapter. But for women, it says they're not permitted to teach or to have authority over a man. And we know that the world makes a big deal about this issue today. But this is the Word of God. This is what God said is right for a church. And it's our practice in Calvary that we follow the Word of God and we do this very thing, which is why I'm up here speaking right now. This is, my, this is my responsibility as a man to be a teacher, and I take it very seriously because it's my God-given responsibility. It's not my position up here to say that I'm better than anyone else. That's not the point. The point is I'm fulfilling my God-given role. This is what God wants me to do. And so that's why I'm here speaking right now. And that's why it says for women, they're not permitted to speak but to be silent. It's not their role. They have other responsibilities. We've talked about some of that already. And he, furthermore, Paul goes and he says this is why. It's the order that was, was set up back in the Garden of Eden with the first with the first marriage of Adam and Eve. And furthermore, he says in verse 14, or sorry, verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. So there's a natural order there. And it says, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So Paul's kind of giving us a little bit more insight into what happened in the Garden of Eden. He's saying when Satan in serpent form came, and tempted Eve. Paul says she was deceived and she sinned. But when Adam came along, he was not deceived, but he sinned anyway. So they're both equal parties. They both sinned before the Lord. But Paul says part of this natural order to things is because the woman was deceived and Adam was not. Now they both sinned. So we can't... <laughs> disparage one over the other. But Paul's saying the reason that it's God has ordained that men be teachers is because Eve was deceived and Adam was not, but they both fell into transgression. And some people have said, well, if women don't teach or hold authority in church, then what role do they have? There's nothing left if they don't have any authority. Well, that's why there's verse 15. Paul writes, Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-controlled. So let's just look at the first uh, five verses there. Nevertheless, she will be saved. Saved from what? Well, it's not talking about salvation in terms of uh, eternal salvation and going to heaven. That's not what this verse is talking about. A woman doesn't gain entrance to heaven 
by raising up kids to fear the Lord. Women and men are both equally partakers in the grace of God through the death of Jesus Christ for salvation. That's how, they're sa- how we're saved. Men and women equally. There's no distinction. It says that in Romans. Male or female. As far as the gospel is concerned, no distinction. So what is she saved from then? Well, she's saved from not having an impact in the church, as it were. A, a mother teaching up her children to fear the Lord has far more impact on a child's life than me talking up here for an hour on Sunday morning. Eliana, I'm up here, and I teach you at Sunday school sometimes, right? How many hours a day is your mom with you? All the hours of the day, right? Yeah. Sharon has much more influence for Eliana's life than I do. And that is right and proper. And that is the role of women in the church. First and foremost, teaching their children the fear and admonition of the Lord. I would not be here today if it wasn't for my mother teaching me to fear the Lord, making me go to Awana and memorizing Bible verses, telling me Bible stories, having quiet times with us, family quiet times every morning while I was growing up before school. I remember much more of what my mother has taught me from when I was little than from any sermon I ever heard on Sunday morning. So, if you're tempted to think, what role do women have if they can't get up here and speak on Sunday morning? Just think about that. It's, why, it's also why I think uh, Mother's Day is before Father's Day. Mothers get the first, <laughs> the first honor in the year before the fathers. And how many mothers have we seen in this assembly and others raising up godly children that have gone on to have an untold impact in the church? Um, I can pick on Krista because she's not here. Um, How many Robertson kids, and what is the effect of all the Robertson kids on this church and all the things that they do? That's just one family. That's just one woman, Krista, having all that effect on this assembly. And there's plenty other mothers in here as well, each with their own kids serving in this assembly. Mothers, we're grateful for you. We really are. This church would not be what it is without the mothers in this assembly. All right, well, what if a woman's not a mother? Right? Not all women are mothers. And there's a lot of, uh, well, I shouldn't say a lot. There's several women in this assembly who don't have any kids that still go to great lengths to serve this assembly. And I won't embarrass anybody, anyone by mentioning them by name. Um, but <laughs> I get a lot of uh, meals on Wednesday evenings because of one uh, lady in our assembly and her husband that serve 
that serve myself and a group of others every Wednesday evening before prayer meeting and give us dinner. That's a huge help, a huge encouragement, a great time of fellowship every Wednesday night. I'm very grateful to them. I'm grateful to the young ladies who help out with the chapel picnics and with the Sunday schools and, and with the nutrition breaks and with uh, things going on during the week and the um, other ladies' events, the, the tea parties and so on and so forth. There's all this stuff that happens, all because of the young ladies in this assembly. Homes that are opened for barbecues and so on and so forth that are having a tremendous impact to unbelievers. All made possible by the young women in this assembly. It's great. <laughs> and we're very grateful to them and what they're doing to build up and unify this assembly. We need the women. And they're to be honored. But there's also a challenge if you're a woman here today in, these, in this passage, saying, look, this is the character expectations that God has of women in the assembly. To have that gentle and quiet and meek spirit, which is precious in the sight of the Lord. To demonstrate service and hospitality towards everyone in the assembly. That's the, that's the calling. That's the challenge. And I see a lot of women here in this audience who have picked up that challenge and just run with it. And that's great. Keep on. Keep pressing on. And if you're struggling with it, find another woman to come alongside. That's what the whole, the, the, this whole principle of a body of a church is all about. No one has to serve the Lord alone. No one has to go about it on their own strength. We have the Lord providing His strength providing direction through His Word, and we have each other. It says of the, the church that it um, is knit together by what every joint supplies. In other words, every person has their own integral part to play in the assembly, and it's all knit together when it all works together. And the illustration, of course, is a body. My wrist doesn't have a whole lot of effect without my elbow and my shoulder. Right? It, can only, it has a very limited range of motion. But when all the parts work together, I can feed myself, I can play sports, I can drive. There's an unlimited number of things I can do because I can work to, because all these things work together. Whereas just by itself, it's much less effective. And the same is true of the body of the, ch of the church. When this group of people comes together and says, hey, we're going to put together four people, five people, and we're going to start planning a church event. Those four people working together, four or five people working together, are much more effective than just one person working all by themselves. A husband and wife are much more effective as a team than separately. So, because if a woman had to go out, and it, I mean, it has been done, that a woman raises her kids and works a job and provides for her family and brings up all the kids by herself. It has been done before, but it's much better if there's a husband and wife team working towards that goal of bringing up kids. And it's been done on the guy's side as well. 
But <laughs> I think any husband, any father in this audience would agree that their wife does a much better job of taking care of the kids than they do. It's not to say that you don't have a role in, as a father in bringing up your kids. Assuredly, you do. And there's, a challenge, there's plenty of challenges to fathers in the Scriptures. We're not covering them today. But that team dynamic, that's the real powerhouse. God says, this is what I've ordained from the beginning, right? This is what started with Adam and Eve as the first parents. And that husband and wife dynamic team accomplishes far more to honor and glorify God than any one person individually can. And unfortunately, as humans, being what we are, sinful people, we've tried to do our best to mess that up and say that it can be done differently than the way God intended it. And yes, you can mess with the formula, and people assuredly have, but nothing works so well as God's perfect plan. And there's a real honor that is brought to the Lord, as it says in verse 15, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. I've seen and heard a lot of times a Christian family will bring their kids into a, into a, a community event. Other parents notice when kids are well-behaved, don't they? And that's a real testimony towards unbelievers when they see a believer's kids having self-control and not fighting with each other every minute. And it's a testimony to the parents' love for the Lord. It's a testimony that they're following the proper plan that the Lord has laid out in the Scriptures. And that, beyond just the impact of those kids living their life for the Lord, it also has an impact on people around because it's noticed in the community when a family is following the Lord. And there are plenty of uh, witnessing opportunities that I've noticed that families have had because one parent will come to a believing parent and say, your kids are so well behaved. How do, you, how do you do that? I could never get my kids to behave that well. And the parent gets the privilege and honor of saying, the reason my kids are well behaved is because I'm following godly principles and bringing them up. And I'm following the Lord's plan. That gives honor to God. And it can really stagger people who think that this world has it all figured out and that all the lies about uh, you know, not disciplining your kids or it's just fine with one parent or so on and so forth, when they see a family in smooth operation as God intended it, <laughs> man, that really gives credit to God and it really staggers people when they say, huh, I guess maybe some of those other things don't work so well. Maybe God had the right plan all along. And you win opportunities for the gospel that way. Because you can say, guess what? Just like God has a plan for raising families, He also has a plan for our lives. 
that involves us recognizing that we're sinners and need a Savior. Bam! Instant gospel presentation right there. Just by talking or having that testimony of well-behaved kids. So how many witnesses have the mothers gained by raising up their kids that we wouldn't even think about? We, you might see the evangelist going door to door, knocking on people and trying to talk to them. But how many opportunities has a mother created in a park sitting there with her kids playing on the playground? She may have more effective testimony than that door to door evangelist because of her meek and quiet spirit, which she has passed on to her kids. That's precious in the sight of God, and it really does have an impact. And I can tell you that because, A, it's in the Word of God, and, two, because I've seen it in my own life and in the people here in this assembly, and I think you all have too. We see the impact that really living for the Lord has, and that's the challenge to all of us, not just to the women, but to all of us. Live properly as part of the body of Christ. Do things in propriety and moderation. Have that gentle and quiet spirit. Ladies, the challenge is to you, but to guys, equally so. Live properly before the Lord. Do what the Scripture says. It really does have an impact, like I was talking about. And... Um, oh, I forgot to mention, uh, when we were talking in, verse, in First Peter, um, t- talking about husband, husbands honoring their wives, it says that your prayers may not be hindered at the uh, end of verse 7. If a husband is not honoring his wife, is not holding up his end of the bargain, it says there that his prayers are hindered. He's not in a right Relate, uh, right fellowship with God because of his treatment, his poor treatment of his wife. So the challenge is to both men and women do things properly before the Lord so we may f- faithfully serve him, have an impact on this world, and have pure and true fellowship with the Lord as he intended. Shall we pray? Lord, we thank you for laying out exactly what you want us to do in your word. I thank you for the challenge to women. I thank you for the challenge to men to support women in in their roles as godly mothers, as servants in the church. Lord, we don't want to ever tear each other down or not dwell together in unity. But Lord, we seek to build one another up to build up this church, to serve you and glorify you. Lord, you went to the cross, suffered the wrath of the Father, poured out your very life blood for us, your church. And Lord, we pray that as we go about our week that we would follow you properly in modesty, knowing who we are before you, giving all the glory to you, and living humbly in your sight. Lord, we pray this, that we would all live this this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.